Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. It's a, what, a, what a privilege, you know, to stand and raise our voices like that, join the church all over the world today. Um, people of so many language and so, people of high and low estate, people imprisoned, lifting their voices with us that we cannot see them. God, our Lord, can hearing his, our praise, their praise, our praise together to Him. So it's a great privilege to be part of that and a good reminder. Well, fall's here, summer's over, and uh, that's a great gift. I'm glad. It's a great time in our culture. It's a great time in our sporting season. You know, a lot of good things happening. Of course, I'm talking about the baseball playoffs postseason, in case you were wondering. Um, but we've been here together in this journey to freedom has been our focus on Sunday morning for some time. We're probably going to be in it sometime. There's so many paths that are kind of interconnected and intertwined on this journey to freedom. You've, you've hiked before, many of you probably, and you've been on what you thought was the main path, and then you found yourself on another one and not really sure if it led back to where you hoped you were going to go. And, uh, and, and that's kind of how the series is when you jump into with this question of what does it mean to be a free person, not just politically, but internally in such a way that my life is flowing out of good things happening on the inside of me. I'm freely, in increasing measure, expressing what it means to be filled with God, to be a Christ follower, to have a life with purpose that loves and blesses people, that that becomes more and more a natural response of our lives. That's freedom. And there's so many different angles in God's Word on this. So we're taking different paths in this journey. Today we're going to set foot on sort of a new path uh, for us. Uh, it's the path of obedience. Freedom and obedience, those aren't two words we often think of going together. We, we often put obedience with words like surrender and submission or duty, uh, gut it out and do the right thing, uh, obey. We don't really like part of it. We don't like often being feeling like we're being demanded uh, upon. Especially we don't like being demanded on when it gets in the way of what we want, what we want to do. Um, so I got a little video show you. It's kind of like these two little geniuses. I don't roll it quite yet, Jeremy. I feel kind of bad about showing this video after that like heartwarming, compelling snapshot of children running with their Christmas presents. But I, I actually think this is good for us to see. We also need to be reminded of more of the on-the-street rawness of children. So here we go. Maybe you've seen it. You go again. You go again. 
<laughs> All right. All right, stop the tape, Jeremy. I, I don't really know why I showed that. There's <laughs> just something like so good and right about seeing that. And I don't know if that just means I'm really hopelessly broken or what that is. But I love that video. You know, there's a lot of them that float around on. Uh, yeah, that was a good one. I just had to show it. I had to work it in somehow. Today we meet up again with the people of God. 3,500 years ago, out there in the desert. They're bumbling and stumbling along. They've been rescued the past few weeks out of the slave trade. They're following this strange figure, this kind of sort of one of us, but sort of immigrant, Moses. A leader they didn't elect. A leader that has this confusing combination of commanding presence and a disturbing insecurity. Moses. Moses is leading them along the long way. They didn't choose that. They've arrived at the foot of a mountain. Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, God has decided to visit them. The God of their forefathers, the God of the burning bush, the God of the plagues, the God of the Passover, the God who's been going ahead of this homeless mob and cloud and fire, the God who pushed and pulled them across a dry sea and then drowned their oppressors in a deluge in that same sea. Now they find themselves in a very, very uncomfortable situation. God has descended on the mountain. And he wants to speak to them. So let's listen in. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. This is territory we've covered before. There's a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And God spoke all these words. This is sort of unique. This is almost unprecedented that God is speaking in this way, this directly, sort of verbatim. There's a point made, this is verbatim in the Scripture. Here's what he says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall now not bow down to them or worship them. 
For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. For six days you shall labor and do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance. Let's pray together. God, what a privilege it is that we've heard these words, best as we know verbatim from you. You spoke these words in a time and place in history. The people were so overwhelmed at your words and the manifestation of your presence. They knew that they were in the presence of holy, of other, of not like them, of sovereign, of truly commanding, that it caused them to quake. God, we can't create that. In this room, we can't manufacture it. Help us never to try. But Lord, we do stand in the presence that we have come to know through the gospel of Jesus. Through His impartation of His Spirit in our lives as we've come to trust in Him. So Lord, this morning, we don't know precisely what we should ask for. But we do ask you would fill us with your presence. And that would be a good thing for us. We don't know if we'll quake or if we'll feel loved or both. But we do welcome you. Because you are the Lord, the God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am the Lord, your God. God begins this, what's come to be called the Ten Commandments, not with a command, but with a statement. I am the Lord, your God. The statement becomes a fundamental premise of everything he's about to say, of the propositions he's about to give his people. 
I am the Lord your God. Without these words, without comprehending what is at play here, the way of obedience that God is going to call them into, without these words, I am the Lord your God, the commandments are going to be little more for you than oppressive, life-sucking rules. And it will be the same for this people 3,500 years ago. They won't be able to do what God's about to tell them unless they keep in mind what he's saying right here. I am the Lord your God. Everything is anchored in that phrase. Their true obedience hinges upon wrapping themselves around that. He is their God. They are his people. I am the Lord you got, your God who brought you out of Egypt. God has a history with this people. I brought you out of Egypt. They share a past. God and them. He did something for them. Something epic. Something historical. I brought you out of the land of slavery, out of brutality, out of oppression. Only a few weeks prior to this, they had been bought and sold like property. But God is telling them no longer. Not now. Look around, he says, you're free. I have delivered you. I've redeemed you from there, from that dark, strangling, hopeless state. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Can you imagine hearing those words? Can you imagine being Moses with God on the mountain? They must have felt incredibly dense. God is communicating for sure care and affection for this people. I'm the Lord your God who redeemed you, but I think He's saying more. He's communicating more than care and affection. Though He is doing that, and I think this is His word for us this morning, is the more. God is making a claim on a people. I am the Lord your God. You are my people. And then he says, therefore, and I encourage you as in the coming weeks as we go through what God is going to command them to do, that you would remember this phrase, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, therefore. Each command could begin with that word, therefore. He says, you will have no other gods before me. Now, that word before is an interesting word. It doesn't just mean before, it's just how it's translated. Maybe you have what they, we used to call the Amplified Bible. It would give you lots of different um, synonyms for the word. And the, this word doesn't mean just before, it means beside, it means behind, it means among, it means around. You will have no gods before, beside, around, among, behind me. None. None other. No one. 
Not even a little one. Not even a quiet little gremlin tucked away in your closet somewhere. Not an invisible one. Not a hidden one buried deep in your heart. None. No other gods. God is making a claim on a people. He's claiming exclusivity. No other gods. This was completely unique for them to hear this. In the ancient Near East, it was filled with tribal local gods. Little G's. It was a pluralistic landscape of deities. Many of them were called Baals. Maybe you've heard that term before. It's not really a proper name. It just means Lord. These little, small L lords were everywhere. Each town, each village often, each territory had their own Baal. Their own little Lord. God's pushing back on that. He's making a claim. This first commandment upon which all the others hinge isn't this. Now, now guys, Moses, make sure you tell them to please, 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 if it's not too much trouble, no other gods. That's really going to clutter things up if they do. And it's going to be hard to untangle. It'll really make it hard for me to do that. Uh-uh. God has come in thunder and smoke and fire. He is showing, He's proclaiming His Lordship over nature, over the mountain, over the universe. And now He's commanding His people, you will have no other gods. None beside me, none above me, none below me, none around me. I've been trying this week to think about how to illustrate this. It's not easy, you know. And I came up with one and it may not work. But uh, I don't really watch football much, but like sometimes on ESPN or whatever, they'll break down these plays. Go ahead and roll that next one, Jeremy. So stop it just for a minute. So can you stop? Yeah. So you see that I call it the halo, right? So like, like when they're breaking a play down, I guess, they want to isolate a player so you can see that player in slow motion or whatever, and these guys that look like highlighters, sharpies, are playing, and this guy over here on the right, is it your, yeah, you're right, it has this halo around so you could see him, and you can go ahead and roll it, Jeremy, there's really not much more to see unless you like football. So he throws him the ball, but, and that's the guy with the halo that catches the pass, that's, that's enough football. So... <laughs> But, I, but this is what I thought of. Yesterday I was riding my bike and I, I, this came to mind. It's like God is putting a halo around us as individuals, as a people. And he's saying, this halo is the place of your allegiance. This is where your ultimate affection is. And I'm saying nothing else in the halo. Nothing else belongs. Just me. Just me alone. One God. Math majors, there, there's an obvious difference between the value of numbers like 2 and 3 or 3 and 4 or 5 and 50 or 100 and 1,000. But, but the difference in the distance between two plural numbers is not the same kind of difference 
and distance between one and more than one. Does that make sense? Because it's a matter of singular and plural. Or sociology majors, there may be a difference between a man or a woman with two wives or two husbands and a man with eight wives or a woman with eight husbands, but they still have multiple spouses. Their attention is still being divided among them. But someone with one spouse, he thinks about or she thinks about and lives in marriage differently than the one with multiple, whether it's two or eight. So that woman, that man with one spouse would probably say that a polygamist, we live in marriage differently. We think about something completely different about marriage. I think that's a little bit getting at what God's saying here. One. No other gods. He's making a claim on a people. He's making a claim on our lives. He is their Lord. As far as he's concerned, if you have many gods, get this, you have zero gods. He wants to be clear, if he's not their one God, he's not their God. He will not be their local Baal. Their unconditional allegiance, their single-minded worship, are to be for him. This is not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. Now, it wasn't that they couldn't refuse him. They could, in fact, many did. But God was not brokering a deal with them. He's making a claim on a people. I want you to listen to God's word from the New Testament. It's from the book of Ephesians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And now hear this, for He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Does that sound something akin to what we've been hearing? God has made a claim for us. He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. You know, at some point in your journey with God, that truth, the density of those words, will set in. They should. I remember when it did for me. I was a college student. And I remember when my faith made a transition. I don't know if it was a moment or a movement, but it made a transition and I realized that my relationship with God was much, much more than me just sort of choosing Him. Now I had done that, but there was much, much more going on. God had made a claim for me. You know, when you get that, it's sort of sobering, isn't it? I mean, it's wonderful because it's wrapped up in love, that claim in Jesus. And it's wonderful to grasp at that, but it also doesn't take away the sober part of it. That God makes a claim for us. 
So God's making a claim for his people. And the other commandments that follow are really not much more than applications of this one. In fact, what God says next, the second commandment, is intimately interwoven like those paths in the hike with this one. He says, you shall not make an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them. For I am the Lord your God and I am jealous. First God says, no other gods. Now he says, did you guys hear what I just said? That's what he's saying in the second one. Don't play games with me. That's what the second one is. You shall not make an image. What's an image? It's a representation, isn't it? An image. It represents something or someone else. It's something to look at, maybe even to gaze upon. Its purpose is to be sort of a substitute for the real thing. It's a replica of the real. That's an image. You know, a photo of your friend that you may have or you've posted is not the same thing as your friend. It's just an image of them. Danny paints beautiful images, landscapes, and other things. They have the ability to draw us in. You know, I, I, she had a show this uh, weekend at a coffee shop, and I was there Friday morning, and, you know, it, it kind of draws me in. Some of them have stories that I know a little bit about. And as I, as I look at her work, I can imagine myself sometimes being in the image, you know, in the painting. Even though I'm not, I can experience somewhat what the image is trying to communicate or how I maybe interpreting it. But I can really only imagine I can entertain myself even by thinking I'm in it. But I'm not. You shall not make an image. Now God's not condemning art. Good, good news, Danny, right? He's essentially saying the same thing he just said. You shall have no other gods. And don't try to sub me out with a replica. Don't replace me. No sort of gods allowed. Nothing in the form of anything. Heaven, earth, below. You know how this strikes me? It's like, boy, God knows us. Doesn't He? He knows what gets in that halo. Now he knows we're not so primitive. Most of us are more sophisticated. He knows we're not going to go get a piece of wood and, and turn it on a lathe and turn it into a goat. He knows we're not going to probably get a block of plastic and melt it down and form it into a monkey and bow down and worship that. He knows we're, most of us are more sophisticated than that. So we could kid ourselves and say, I don't, I don't do that silly stuff. I don't have any bales in my closet. Boy, God really knows us. He knows that we're prone to sneak stuff into the halo. Place where our ultimate 
non-negotiable, that part of us, the part that cries for life, part that wants to worship, that wants to seek, that wants to look outside of ourselves. He knows that we look in all different kinds of places, that we're wanderers. What's in the halo? What's in there for you? It can be just about anything. It can be sillier than a plastic monkey. It might be your reputation. It might be financial security. It might be the wife or husband you don't have. Or a different one than the one you have. It might be that child you don't have or a different one you don't have or the one you lost or the anger you feel towards your father. A lot, lot of kinds of stuff gets in that halo. It might be your career. It might be your blueprint for your life that you're constructing. What's in it? That's what God's getting at here. It's what He's making, can I say it? It's what He's making claim on. God says something super interesting and super personal about Himself. At the end of this command number two, I, the Lord, your God, am jealous. We know the jealous type, don't we? You know that guy? You go to the sports bar and he's there with his girlfriend or his wife. And he goes to the bathroom and he comes back out of the bathroom and there's some other dude striking up conversation with her. And he starts twitching. You know? You're, you're, you're watching this and you go, this is not good. I don't know what's about to happen, but it's not good. I'm a jealous God. Now, now I, I know that the twitching dude in the bar is probably a terrible analogy for the jealousy of God. I'm not saying the jealous dude in the bar is the same thing as God's jealousy. But I do think there's something in the twitch. It helps me get it. Jealousy is a very personal thing. Jealousy is a very possessive thing. Jealousy is a very intimate thing for a God who's made his claim on a life. To be jealous means you're in. You're fully in. Heart, head, body, soul. A Jewish scholar came to Jesus with a question. Of all the commandments, he asked, which is the greatest, most important? Jesus answers, it's this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Sound familiar? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Halo. There's the halo right there. 
God is all in. And he asks nothing less from his people. He asks nothing less from your life. If, if you think, if you have the idea that I can sort of be in, then you need to read the second commandment. God says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt, out of bondage. And you need to know that I am all in. I'm not a distant, unfeeling deity. I am a twitching God. I am worse than the proudest grandfather you've ever met. I am jealous for you. God is making a claim. And He says, do not play games with me. Do not bring stuff into that halo. Kick them out when they crawl in there. I have zero tolerance for that because I have claimed you. You are my treasured people. I am fully committed. And so, if I'm going to make this claim on you, I'm going to say you must be all in with me. You must be. Because I have brought you out of the land of slavery. And we'll explore that theme later. There's more commands we're going to discuss. They're important ones, but we start here. God makes a claim on us. You will have no other gods and no replacements. Here's the deal. You can't bypass these. They all hinge on these. You have to do business with them. Otherwise, you're playing a game. Now, I'm not suggesting you're going to do this perfectly. I think we all understand that. I probably don't even need to say it. But that does not weaken the second commandment. Here's the thing. Obedience. There's the word right here. Allowing God to claim your life. To say yes to that. It's going to open something in you. It's going to open up the courage and the power and the freedom to truly obey God. It's going to usher in your life something that the New Testament calls righteousness that you can't imagine. You're going to have the freedom, the power, the ability to truly obey from the heart even while you're not doing it perfectly. It's going to come from a place of love just like it has from God. Not duty. Not just simply fear. I mean, you don't take the fear completely out. But that's not what drives it. It's love. To love the Lord your God, Jesus says. That's the greatest. With the halo. He is the Lord God after all. He's worthy of your undivided allegiance. He is worthy. Whatever you're identifying that's in that halo... I don't care if it's, a, if it's a wicked thing or I don't care if it's a good thing. You know, God even said, don't even make an image of anything in heaven that's hanging out up there with me. It may be the most beautiful, sacred, holy thing you've got. It may be ministry. God says, you kick that out of the halo. There's room for one in that halo. It belongs to me because I have made a claim on your life. 
You can't obey the others until this one gets you. Not freely, not in a way that's really going to make sense to you and that will keep making sense to you unless God is truly the Lord your God who has come in the radiance of Jesus whom ironically is the one thing Scripture calls the image of God. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him and through Him all things were created. Jesus speaks and the world comes into existence. You can't replicate that. Coming to know Jesus will give you the freedom to keep your halo right where it needs to be. Without Him, you're going to spend your whole life energy dragging stuff in and kicking stuff out. No one and nothing else in the halo. Let's pray. What's in your halo? What's been in your halo? I want to give you a little space for that. It's a conversation you're probably going to have to continue after you walk out of here with yourself, hopefully with God. There may be other little G-gods in there. I just want to tell you the way to find freedom from those places, even the good things, is by making the Lord God, Jesus Christ, your Lord of your life. That's what brings the freedom to do it and the joy that's in doing it. Maybe today's the day you need to do it. Maybe today's the day to deal with a halo, finally. Maybe you've been considering it for a while. You've been drawn in. Maybe today's the day. It's time to do it. If that's you, I'm just going to ask you to do a hard thing. I ask you to stand. You have to say anything. Just do the hard thing. God's worthy of you doing the hard thing. He's worthy of your ultimate allegiance, your undivided worship. He wants to lay claim on your life through Jesus. So if that's you, just stand. In a minute, the rest of us are going to stand. We're going to worship together. We're going to give our ultimate allegiance as best as we know how and where we are in our lives to, to Christ, to God. God, we come before you as people with cluttered halos. We are embarrassed about that, that we start not enjoying things or other people, but we start giving them a place in that halo, a place in our life. We start wrapping our fingers around them. And as I, as I continue to pray, now's your time to stand. Like I, I know God, I belong to Him, but 
I'm standing as a way of saying before God, I'm clearing out the halo and leaving you alone in there and I'm going to do by the grace of God all I know to do to keep it that way. Knowing I'm not going to be flawless. That's what grace is for. See, grace is the weather system. It's the ecosystem in the halo. It's the kindness of God that will keep things out and allow you to have the courage to kick them out when they sneak back in. So Lord, now, would you do business with us? These, these words we've heard this morning are dense. I pray they would fall on us like they did that people 3,500 years ago. But God, I pray they wouldn't feel like the weight of, uh, of crushing us. I pray that we would feel the claim you've made, the jealousy that you love us with the rightful place you have to be our master. No men can do that. That's called oppression. But Lord, we can come under your care, your watchful embrace, and hear your words, you belong here. You are loved. You're treasured. I'm going to fuel your life into abundance. God, give us that. Give us the courage and the power to do it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.